Welcome aboard the dragon. As Vergana settles us down, stabilizes the ship into low Earth orbit to bring you another transmission of the Orbital Zombie Dragon Show. Where we talk about all things sci-fi, horror, and fantasy. Particularly from a story writing standpoint, because that's, you know, what I'm interested in. I'm a writer myself. Your captain, Richard Boomzilla Pippin. And uh, as you know, if you've been listening to the show, this is Horror Month on OZD. And we are talking about nothing but horror. <laughs> to be honest, I've been watching so much, so much horror this month. But I'm, I guess I'm starting to get a little bit burned out on it. As much as I love horror and I grew up watching horror and reading horror, eh, I've watched a lot of horror films and read a lot of horror stuff this month. And uh, <laughs> maybe starting to do a little burnout. This is episode seven of the new show that uh, you know, we relaunched earlier this year. And this is like the episode three of uh, Horror Month. <laughs> um I always have a lot of fun with Horror Month. Uh, I, I try to do, instead of covering all three subjects, I pick a theme and I go with it. So uh, I think, you know, let's see, so far this month we've done Teen Screams and we did, um, oh, what was the one last week now? <laughs> ghost Stories. Ghost Stories. If you guys haven't noticed yet, I don't do a lot of editing to this show. It's just me having a conversation with you. So if you hear me going, what did I talk about last week? That's just me. I don't put on a radio voice. I'm not like, hey, come on out and see us on Saturday. No, no, I talk to you like I talk to my friends. And uh, it's just a conversation between us, even though it's you know just me in the transmission room of the fastest pirate vessel in the galaxy, sending a transmission down to you, uh, you know, Earth-loving uh, people. Um <laughs> As always, I start the show with a couple of announcements. Uh, Want to talk about the Rougarou Festival, which I am a part of. I got invited to start participating in the Rougarou Festival last year, and this, this is my second year participating in it. The Rougarou Festival is just a local kind of uh, family-friendly uh, horror-themed festival. You know, you're going to see a lot of zombies and witches and stuff like that. But I don't think it's anything too scary. As long as your kid's not a scaredy cat, <laughs> they can probably handle it. Uh, but it takes place in Houma, Louisiana. I know a lot of you listening may not be familiar with Houma, Louisiana. It's a small town. Uh, well, I say small. It's a fairly large city. About an hour west of New Orleans, Louisiana. And it's put on for a good cause. It's put on for uh, you know wetlands recovery, restoration. So a lot of the proceeds go to um, that effort to restore the wetlands. So if you happen to be in Louisiana, you know, New Orleans is not the only place to be. Home is a nice town. And we have the Rougarou Festival every year in October. It's going down this weekend. In fact, um, 
I was I participate in one of the parades. I play Riff Raff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So if you happen to be in the area and you want to come see the parade, it's going on today, you know, October the 21st. No, no. Boy, am I confused. Yeah, October 21st. Yeah, I think the parade starts today at 2 p.m. And you're going to see zombies and witches and rougarous and everything else. Oh, if you don't know what a rougarou is, I think I covered this on a previous episode. But rougarou is kind of a local werewolf legend. But uh, come on and see us. If you see Riff Raff walking the parade, that's me. That's Captain Boomzilla Pip. And I come back to Earth every year to do this now. Second year in a row. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Uh, there's a lot of good, you know, authentic Louisiana food. You know, if you think you're getting Cajun food out of state, you're not really. You got to come down here and get some real home of Louisiana Cajun food. <laughs> so it's just something I'm part of. I may, I, I don't know, I may try to change my role somewhat in the parade next year. I love being part of the Time Warp crew, but I, I'm kind of thinking I would like to have a booth there for the podcast. And hopefully maybe by next year I'll actually have a regular uh, co-host and, and you better come out and meet the podcast sort of thing. But I don't know. That'll I'll announce that if that ever comes to fruition. <laughs> fruition. <laughs> uh, I told you I'd talk like I normally talk, but the fruition is probably not a word I'd normally use. I don't know. just came to me. So today's theme was supposed to be demons and devils. And let me tell you, I tried. <laughs> I really tried. As usual, the captain of the show, me, and willing to make sacrifices for you, my earthlings, <laughs> to put on a good show for you. And I watched a lot of demon and devil and cult movies and stuff like that. I really tried to come up with something to talk to you about. And it's not necessarily that these movies are bad or these shows are bad, although some of them were. It's just that even the good ones, I didn't have too much interesting to say about them. They're fairly uh, formulaic, and they, I don't know, they're very much a product of their times. A lot of these uh, demon, devil, antichrist, you know, uh, possession-type movies kind of came about late 70s, early 80s, when those things were on people's minds. You know, you had cults, and, you know, the whole Manson thing, and and uh, you had... Uh, you know, guys that were actually hired to deprogram people's children that had been sucked into cults. <laughs> and there was stuff in the news about letting your kids play in Dungeons and Dragons. I was a Dungeons and Dragons kid, by the way. I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and all those other role-playing games. And it's like, oh, signs that your kid may be falling in too deep with Dungeons and Dragons and how it can lead to getting possessed. <laughs> I'm serious. That was a thing in the late 70s, early 80s. So I'm not really sure that genre really kind of holds up today. And there's been some attempts to kind of refresh it uh, with the, um, especially like the demonology movies, like the uh, Conjuring and the Annabelle movies. And some of those have been pretty good, but I don't know if it's really a subject people are too interested in. And I started watching it and I was like, God, half of these movies suck. They really blow. And the other half, I really have nothing interesting to say about them except that that they were kind of a product of their time and uh, may not I guess they'll always be a thing but I don't think unless something changes in our culture 
it's not going to be a, a major thing. It won't be a, a mainstream thing. <laughs> In fact, one of them I went back and watched, if you're familiar with it, is uh, Damien, Omen 2, that whole Omen series of movies. I think they had one remake with uh, Lee Schreiber. Uh, you know, it kind of came about from that time, this idea that the Antichrist was going to rise. You know, we had these shows on HBO, like the prophecies of Nostradamus talking about the three Antichrists. And that was something people were interested in back then. But uh, I remember watching Damien Omen 2, the one where he was a teenager in the uh, military academy, and being terrified of it as a kid, watching it on like Morgus Presents on Saturday night from my local people. <laughs> Only my local people probably know who Morgus is. But it was a local Saturday night kind of B-horror movie show that would come on. And Morgus was like the mad scientist host that would put on the show. It's kind of our version of Elvira. We had Morgus <laughs> over here. But I remember watching Damien Omen 2 and being terrified of it, especially of a couple of scenes. But when you go back and watch it now, it just it just seems really silly and kind of pointless. <laughs> I don't know why it was so scary, probably just because we we're kids. So like I said, I really tried to make this about demons and devils and antichrists and possessions and stuff. But I really couldn't find anything interesting, so I changed the theme. I changed the theme this week to talk about my favorite author, some of his films, or one of my favorite authors, Stephen King, that I grew up with. I loved Stephen King growing up, and uh, part of the reason I wanted to become a writer was I wanted to be Stephen King, <laughs> to be honest. like I wanted to be Stephen King. All of these movies that I kind of picked today have to do with I guess you can call them demons or devils, but they're like otherworldly forces. These are kind of things, and you see this a lot in, in Stephen King's novels. There's things with these, they have an immense amount of power. They have these, these powers and motives that are just kind of beyond human understanding. And they, they, they go about you know, what they're doing, and this greatly affects the characters and the stories. But to these beings, these otherworldly beings, the characters' feelings or how it impacts their lives is like nothing to them. They, they, they really mean nothing to them. How it affects their lives means nothing to them any more than like feeding on them. Like to them, it's like a trip to the grocery store. <laughs> oh, too bad it destroyed your whole life and you're scarred for life. I needed to, you know, I needed some milk and cookies. <laughs> So, they, I mean, it's nothing more to them than feeding or moving towards their kind of unknowable goals, you know, uh, goals that we can't even understand. This is a common thing, theme in a lot of Stephen King's novels. You see this over and over again in the Stephen King universe or multiverse, along with the idea, and you're going to see that in these three examples I have for you today, that some places are just bad. There's some places in the world that are just bad. They're spoiled. Uh, you don't want to build your town there. You don't want to try and grow crops there or, or try to live your life there or anything. They're just bad somehow and may not even know why. It's lost in history. And I'm going to get into that some more, some examples of how that is. It's just the, the land is sour. <laughs> and that's a pretty common theme. And the Stephen King novels, and sometimes it's not so much that it's bad, it's that it has uh, sort of an interdimensional link 
to another place in time that maybe where bad things live, bad things dwell, and the barrier is thin, and they can kind of come into our world and affect our lives. So again, common theme in Stephen King novels. I've chosen three films to talk to you about today. Some of them went way back in the past, some a little bit back in the past, and one that's more modern. I have to say that I'm really pleased with uh, the Stephen King films of late. If you really go back in the library of films that were based on the books, they weren't always good. <laughs> you know, horror was kind of the, the dirty uh, uh, underground basement of both writing and films for a long time. And so budgets were small and, and uh, you know, the, the A-list actors weren't available. So, again, if you go back and watch a lot of these horror movies, they're kind of products of their times, too, and how much attention and money studios were willing to focus on them. So it's easy to go back and judge now, but times are different now. But this latest run of Stephen King movies have all been really good. In fact, they've gone back and remake some that were kind of flops in the past, and we're going to cover one of those today. And uh, really revived them. And Stephen King is, uh, I mean, he's always been great, but he is on the rise now. I think we're going to see a lot more great things coming out of that in the very near future. So the three films I picked today were Children of the Corn. That's the way back one. Uh, one kind of from when I was in high school, Pet Cemetery, which there's a remake of that coming soon. Going to talk about that in a bit. And It. The, the newest one, the one that just came out last year. And I chose that one to talk about because uh, even though I started this podcast back in 2015, I wasn't really active doing the podcast when it came out, even though I went to see it at the theater and I wanted to cover it today. So we're going to jump into it. <laughs> Children of the Corn, 1984 film starring Peter Horton as Bert. I searched and searched. I, I know you know who Peter Horton is. If you see him, you're going to recognize him. He's been around forever, but he really hasn't done a lot of genre films. He's done a lot of TV. He's still doing TV to this day. Uh, good actor, but uh, I couldn't find anything genre to relate back to you guys. But not so of the second star of this film, Linda Hamilton as Vicky. Of course, you know Linda Hamilton. She's been in a ton of stuff and a ton of genre stuff, particularly the Terminator films and more recently the Lost Girl TV series and Defiance, uh, which are also good. <laughs> you also have in here John Franklin. I had to mention these two guys in addition. I try to keep this cast thing brief to really get into it, but John Franklin played Isaac, which is like the, he's like the little child cult leader of this town that they end up in. And uh, you might know him from some, he's still doing films. He's still doing horror films. In fact, uh, the most recent things uh, I'm not really familiar with, although he was in the Adams Family movies uh, as Cousin It. <laughs> you hardly saw his face. He was Cousin It covered in hair. But uh, I assure you, that was him. You also have in here Courtney Gaines as Malachi. Uh, Malachi is the, if you, if you saw this movie in your childhood like me, is the tall, red-headed skinny guy that everybody was scared of because he was kind of one of the older ones and I guess physically intimidating. <laughs> he was kind of the enforcer for Isaac that kept things in charge. Courtney Gaines has been in a ton of stuff too. He's got a very distinctive look and uh, that landed him in another uh, kind of horror comedy film from that era called The Burbs, and, uh, which is a good movie. You should see that early Tom Hanks movie, by the way. 
So this movie is very much a sort of uh, in the realm of this type of film is an appease the beast type of supernatural horror. You've seen this a lot. It can vary from, you know, ancient times to where there's, you know, look at Dragon Slayer. Like we have to do this to appease the dragon or he's going to come and eat our village. (laughs) It's very much that kind of movie. The real uh, problem with this movie, when I went back and watched it, it was hard to get through. And the main reason was it took a really long time to get to it. Again, this was a movie that I watched when I was younger and it terrified me. It terrified my little sister, Malachi, especially terrified my little sister. (laughs) But uh, it takes a really long time. So before I went and rewatched it yesterday, I had these memories of it from childhood of being really scary, but I realized upon watching it, my memories of it being scary basically comprised of like maybe the last 20, you know, 15 to 20 minutes of the film was kind of the good part that everybody remembers probably from their childhood. And everything before that is a lot of long, slow buildup of unnecessary scenes (laughs) and just... Uh, it, it was extremely boring, very unnecessary long shots of them just walking around town going, what's going on here? That is easily an hour and 10 minutes of this film, way too long to just, why is this town so empty kind of sense of uh, awe or terror or whatever? Just went on way too long to get to the good part. To be fair, this was based on a short story. They didn't have too much to work from. And uh, they, they, I guess they did their best. <laughs> uh, for some reason, I remember this being a popular film back then. Uh, maybe, again, product of its time. There wasn't a whole lot of competition in the horror realm. So it, it, it shined maybe back then. Now, if you go back and watch it, you're going to find, like, just like I did, the parts that you remember being good and really scary is such a small part of the movie. It's It's almost not worth the hour and 10 minutes of, watching them go around now this movie does not have the cell phone problem that i always talk about because of the time period it takes place in there's pay phones they've all been cut or damaged somehow in the town by the children of the, this cult that have taken over the town the cult of children that have taken over killed all the adults and taken over the town so they don't have that problem of calling for help where it doesn't make sense though is that they spend a lot of time being lost and they've been warned Again, the formula in these movies is they usually get warned by a creepy old guy at a gas station. That totally happens in this film. They stop at a gas station for help. And the creepy old guy there warns them, like, ain't nothing you want in that town. Go up there and turn right and avoid that town. There's some confusing signs that keep leading them towards that town. And so, <laughs> while it may seem to make sense when you're really watching, it's like, even if the, the signs were misleading... And you are warned against it, and you see all this weird, creepy stuff going on. You really need some help. Even if you're totally lost and the signs mislead you to go to the town, if you keep driving through the town, eventually you will get out of the town and leave the town in your rearview mirror. And so the characters, like in a lot of these horror movies, just make some really stupid decisions. Like, let's go check out this creepy old house. It's the last house in town. Uh, even though we were totally freaked out right now and everything so far has been a bust, all the phones have been broken, everything like that. Uh, they just, they're just like, let's go check it out. <laughs> like a, like a Scooby-Doo episode. Gotta go check it out. Let's split up and check it out. 
So I, I can't really say that this film has held up. I, I I can't really recommend to go back and watch it, even though if, if you want to, if you want to go see a film, you know, from the early 80s depicting this type of uh, cult horror, I don't know. You can you can go see it. It's on Netflix right now. <laughs> but you're going to want to fast forward, uh, you know, get the important points. I'll give you the important points right now. In fact, I didn't really do the story setup, but it's, it's so basic. Uh, you can probably kind of glimpse or skip through or skim through the first hour and 10 minutes and get to the good parts. But it's basically this, this town, this kind of isolated town in Nebraska. The children, it's a very religious town, but the children rose up on some day led by this character named Isaac and killed all the adults. In fact, you find out later on they have a rule that once you turn 19, you know, your, your 19th birthday, they sacrifice you to their, their new God, he who walks behind the rose. So Isaac is basically, and through his enforcer Malachi, who I think, if I remember right, is 16. He's one of the older teens that hasn't had to sacrifice himself yet, is uh, supposedly a physically, physically powerful character, obviously over the smaller kids, and is kind of Isaac's enforcer. So you kind of think of it as, you know, Isaac is the priest and, and uh, Malachi is the uh, evil knight. <laughs> so anyway, these two characters, uh, played by Peter Horton and Linda Hamilton, are basically just driving on their way. Peter Horton's character has just graduated from med school and he's on his way to an internship somewhere else. And it's just very much a sort of, uh, not necessarily getting stranded, but things happen that honestly, like I said before, don't make a lot of sense that end them up in this town where things have gone horribly wrong, where the children have killed the adults and taken over and they follow this mysterious um, otherworldly being called He Who Walks Between the Rows and you spend most of the movie going like these kids are just crazy, this guy's just a cult leader and not until the end do you find out He Who Walks Behind the Rows is a real entity, a real thing underneath the earth Again, kind of goes with this theme, although in a minor way of the Stephen King films, that sometimes there are just places that are just bad. They built this town here. They built these farms here. And uh, he who walks behind the rose may have just been slumbering there under the earth, waiting for a prophet like Isaac to come and awaken him. <laughs> but uh, all that sounds a lot deeper than the story actually is. I don't want to mislead you. <laughs> I have not read the short story that it's based on, although I'm kind of interested in, in it now because I've read some of the other reviews talking about how they've not really done a true kind of stick to the uh, original story type of film, whereas this film kind of has a happy ending where the good guys win. I think the original short story I've read that it, it doesn't end so well for everybody involved. That's my thoughts on Children of the Corn. <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to watch it, it's currently on uh, Netflix. I think there was a 2009 remake, although I heard it was even more, even though it maybe stuck to the story a little bit more, it was uh, more horrible than this this one. So I didn't bother to watch it. <laughs> so moving on to my next film, Pet Cemetery. I saw this film at the theater when I was in high school. It's a 1989 film. 
starring Dale Midkiff as Lewis Creed. He hasn't been in a whole lot of genre stuff either. He's been in a ton of TV dramas and stuff like that. He's still active today. I'm sure you can find something he's in. It's really not shows that I'm into, although recently he was in some kind of horror spoof comedy called Hell's Kitty, which coincidentally has a lot of the same actors from Children of the Corn in it. I think John Franklin and Courtney Gaines is in this Hell's Kitty movie, so I may have to go check it out and see uh, if it's funny <laughs> or scary or both. Uh, so it's it's on my list. You also have in here Denise Crosby as Rachel Creed, uh, Dr. Lewis Creed's wife. And of course, you know Denise Crosby from Star Trek The Next Generation and The Walking Dead. Uh, and that was one of my few problems with this movie, going back and rewatching it, is Denise Crosby does not necessarily come off as the uh, average, typical, ordinary housewife character. She seems like a pretty uh, imposing and, uh, and tough-looking person. <laughs> so to see her as the uh, kind of... Um, Oh, not necessarily mousy, but you know, just the you know, just average sort of housewife character from that period of films is kind of weird. She doesn't seem like I don't know. That may have been a even though she's good, that may have been a bit of miscasting. But that was minor. It didn't really bother me that much. And also in this film, you have Fred Gwynn as the neighbor across the busy highway, Judd Crandall. And uh, you should know who Fred Gwynn is. If you don't, maybe it's just because you're too young. Fred Gwynn was a, uh, an awesome guy, a major character actor from, from his uh, time period. By the time this movie rolled around, he was, he was pretty up there in age. So he was age appropriate to play the Judd Crandall character. In fact, I don't think he did too many more movies after this. He did My Cousin Vinny like the year before he died, which was like 92 was my cousin Vinny, and I think he died in 93. But uh, Fred Gwynn just uh, was uh, really, uh, for all the, the, the casting they did with him uh, because of his uh, unusual face, was a really tall, handsome dude with a distinctive voice. And uh, he is missed. I, I think he was a great actor. And again, he played Judd Crandall. And you should know him from a ton of other stuff, you know, sitcoms from... Uh, that time period, like Car 54, Where Are You? But he was also Herman Munster in The Munsters. And you might see some recent credits for him since he was dead, but I think that was just, you know, like compilations that people put together and they gave him credit on those things because he's he's been gone, unfortunately, since uh, 1993. He uh, is missed. And in fact, I was going to mention there is a remake coming soon of Pet Cemetery. Now, I've watched the trailers. I don't know much else about it uh, except, you know, kind of who's in it and what's in the trailer. I will say that there are a few things in the trailer for this remake that kind of are uh, causes for concern for me. I'm a little concerned about, you know, maybe some changes they're making to the story. Uh, I hope it's more true to the book. I mean, this one from 1989 was pretty darn true to the book. I think there was just some some minor changes, probably for production purposes. Uh, but I think you have John Lithgow playing the uh, Fred Gwynn character, Judd Crandall, in the remake that's coming in. I think it's in April of 2019, if I'm not mistaken. I don't have it in my notes here, but I think it was April. So it's coming soon. I am a little bit relieved that they didn't cast John Lithgow and try to have him be Fred Gwynn. 
It looks like more he's doing his own take on the Judd Crandall character. I'm kind of glad for that because I don't think anybody but Fred Gwynn can do Fred Gwynn. I think it would come off as uh, not genuine if they tried to do that. And John Lithgow obviously has his acting chops and probably knows that. (laughs) So hopefully between him and the writers, it does look like they decide to do his own version of the Judd Crandall character and not just try to to rehash uh, Fred Gwynn's performance, which was really good. I'm I'm really hoping I have the best hopes for this remake. That it's going to be good. Like I said, they've had a good run with Stephen King films lately. I hope they're going to keep that up with this one. Uh, My only little weird, and this is probably nitpicky, cause for concern from watching the trailer is it almost makes it seem like, uh, well, I'll tell you what, let me get into that a second. Let me give it a setup of the story just in case you're not a rabid Stephen King fan like me and not familiar with the setup. The setup of the story is Lewis and Rachel and their two children have moved to Maine from Chicago. Uh, He's got this job as a doctor at the local university, and they've all moved there to this house across the highway from Judd Crandall. And one of the first things they see upon moving there is that this highway between the two houses is very busy. There's some type of a mill or factory or something up the road called a Renko. And the trucks go day and night, full speed, up and down this highway. Judd Crandall warns them, you know, you don't want to keep your pets and your kids out of that road because I've lived here a long time. I've seen a lot of bad stuff happen on this road. And of course, you know, it's a Stephen King book, so bad things do happen. The first thing that happens is the family pet gets killed. Judd has kind of shown them the area. One of the other things they first notice in the house is there's this trail leading away from the house into the woods. And Judd takes them on a little field trip to show them the local pet cemetery where children have buried their pets over the years. And he explains it to the little daughter, Ellie. You know, this is a place where, you know, sad kids have come to bury their pets and give them a place of rest and uh, allow them to speak and be remembered through their tombstones. So he shows them that. And, uh, you know, they notice there's there's this deadfall on the edge of the uh, deadfall of, you know, fallen trees and stuff on the edge of the pet cemetery. So, of course, when tragedy falls and the family pet gets killed while the, fam- the rest of the family is on vacation, Judd comes and tells Dr. Creed there's another way besides having to tell the kid that the cat died. And he takes them he takes uh, he takes Lewis beyond the deadfall from the pet cemetery through uh, and if you read the book it seemed like it was a really long trek for them and the, this movie 1989 seemed to reflect that too like he was trekking they were tired by the time they got there they get to this ancient Micmac Indian burial ground and Judd tells him he has to bury his own the ground's very stony he's got to break it apart with a pickaxe buries the cat up there. Judd doesn't really explain why to Lewis. Just says, you know, I got my reasons. You'll see. <laughs> and he does see. The next day, Church the cat comes back. He's alive. He's very stinky, like a dead person. <laughs> or like a dead cat. But he's alive. But the cat now, Judd explains to him, is now Lewis. It's not his daughter's cat anymore. It's Lewis. He's the one that brought him up there and buried him. That cat is linked to him now. And the cat 
comes back different. The cat's, you know, not as nice as it was. <laughs> Even though it's Lewis's cat, it scratches his face on one scene. So you have this setup where now they they know of this place where if you bury something dead there, it comes back to you. And uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to go into this one here because it's hard to explain. Eventually, the worst happens. Lewis's son, Gage, gets run over in the road during a family picnic. So, of course, you see where this is going. There's a temptation there. I should go bury him. Judd comes to tell him, like, I know what you're thinking, but it's been done in the past. The people that come back are not the people you sent up there. It's okay with a cat because they can't do a whole lot of damage, but you don't want to put a person up there. They come back, and it's not them inside. Something else, something evil. So, of course, you can see where this is going. I'm not going to spoil it anymore for you guys in case you haven't seen this. But you can kind of see where this is going, right? <laughs> and, and, and going back to my concern about this remake from watching the trailers, I really hope it's not so. They seem to make it just through what little bit they've shown in the trailer. They seem to make it seem like the place that brings them back to life is the pet cemetery. And that is not the case in the novel or this. Uh, original, you know, 1989 film. It's the Micmac Burial Ground way beyond the Pet Cemetery, And that may, not seem, that may not seem like it's important. It may seem like I'm being nitpicking. Like, so what if they move it to the Pet Cemetery for brevity? But again, it goes back to this theme of Stephen King novels that some places on Earth are just bad. They're just spoiled somehow and you shouldn't try to live there. You shouldn't try to grow crops there. It's just bad, and sometimes the reason is just lost in history. And that's the case with this Micmac burial ground. Judd explains to him at some point that the Micmacs used to be, it was a Micmac burial ground, but when the ground went sour, as he puts it, the Micmacs abandoned it, abandoned it, in fact, warned other people, like, you do not want to go there. We tried to settle there. It's a bad place. Stay away. And uh, apparently the locals know about this place, particularly Judd. He's one of the, uh, probably one of the few left alive that knows the history and the power of the place. So again, if they change it, that kind of changes, you know, this dynamic, the theme that some places are just bad and should stay away. And if it's the pet cemetery so close to Lewis's house, then it's kind of like the house is there. It's not, you know, it's, it's not as a, I don't know, remote or mysterious, I guess, to me. Again, like this, this goes on and on in Stephen King novels. And we're going to go into another one that gives a perfect example of this. But that being said, I went back and watched this. And while there were a few moments of kind of, hmm, I would say, mediocre acting, there was a lot of good acting in it, particularly by Fred Gwynn. Uh, and I think the bad acting parts were not really the fault of the actors. It was more the material and the script. It was hard to deliver that. Some of those lines, I think, it would be very difficult to deliver them and not seem kind of artificial and, and weird and awkward. So I don't really fault them. And it's, it's just such a few minor parts in it that it doesn't really detract from the film. And there are some truly scary and creepy parts of this film that are worth watching for. Yeah. Never get out of bed again. You'll know what I'm talking about. Never get out of bed again. Watch it. You'll know what I'm talking about right there. Uh, some truly scary parts. Uh, 
throughout and especially of course towards the end when it really finally comes to a, a climax and the ending is very uh Stephen King unlike that children of corn movie where they stuck a happy ending on it I'll, I won't spoil it but a lot of Stephen King stories do not end with happy endings <laughs> I know studios love their happy endings so everybody walks out the theater happy but sometimes it's better in horror for everything to be screwed up at the end <laughs> or at least know that you know things that things have gone wrong horribly and 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 uh it's a lot of time was set up for possibly the next one there was a pet cemetery too and i watched it and i don't think it was that good but uh it was all right as i recall maybe i'll watch that one and refresh my memory and talk about it another time that was one with ed furlong and uh what's his name uh, clancy clancy brown yeah but uh so that's my thoughts on pet cemetery this one still holds up Remake coming in April. I got high hopes for it. Um, you know, hopefully it'll be good. So they've had a good run so far with Stephen King films, which brings me to my third topic it, 2017 film. Chapter two, and that's part of the reason I decided to talk about this. Chapter two is coming up very soon. I'm excited about it. I want to, you know, I'm definitely going to see it when it comes out. I will definitely talk about it when it comes out. Uh, this. Is like I said, the 2017 film, not the awful made-for-TV kind of miniseries. Even though it had Tim Curry in it, that one was pretty bad. If you haven't seen it, I probably wouldn't bother with that one. Watch this one instead. <laughs> and I say that because it sticks to the book a lot more. As I recall, the TV one, Pennywise, was always Pennywise. Uh, but in the book and in this movie, Pennywise basically is it. It's a thing, an interdimensional thing. And it basically takes the form of whatever you're scared of. If it's clown, it's clowns. If you're scared of spiders, it's a spider. If you're scared of Frankenstein's monster, it'll appear as Frankenstein's monster. So this was a lot more true to the book in that regard, although I think they did change some of the forms he took. But it fit with the characters really well, and it worked. This is more true to the book than the TV show. So definitely watch this one first. If you haven't seen either of them, I'd recommend this one over the TV one. The only difference I've seen, or major difference I've seen from the book, is the way they've done the timeline, and, and it makes sense. If they'd have done it the way the book was, this would have been a, they couldn't have done it, well, it would have been harder to do it in two parts, and it would have been like a four-hour movie in a single part. <laughs> so they would have had to bring back intermissions to do it the way the book presented it. It's a very long book. Believe me, I thought about going back and read it for the show, but that book would take me more than a week to read <laughs> It'd be, it'd be like, okay, I'll, I'll review this a month from now. <laughs> but I do remember a lot about the book. And one of the things about it was that, of course, and uh, I'm going to get more into this in the setup of the story, but the book had an alternating timeline where it would go, you know, show when they were kids with their initial encounter with it or Pennywise. And then uh, their adults coming back to the town 27 years later to deal with it again. And the book alternated, like, from chapter to chapter, you know, from the, I think the original was set in the 1970s or something, so it would alternate from there to, you know, the 90s. Uh, they did change also the time period it takes place in. They updated that a bit for the movie, this movie. So no alternating timelines in, these, in this film, like the book, where it flip-flops from chapter to chapter or scene to scene. 
Instead, what they've decided to do is show you the entire story, you know, continuously from when they were kids, their first encounter with Pennywise, and now chapter two that's coming out soon will show the entire story of when they're adults, which I think the other way would have been not only long, but might have been confusing by the end. You'd have been like, wait, what happened when they flip back in the first 30 minutes? This has a lot more continuity and, and be a little less, a little more presentable, less confusing to the viewer. So <laughs> uh, this is starring a lot of child stars that did a really good job on this film. You got Jaden. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to murder this name. Lieberher as Bill Denborough, one of the major characters, of course. And you might know him from Midnight Special, which is another good little sci-fi thriller film. If you haven't seen it yet, you got Finn Wolfhard as Richie Tozier. He's kind of the little loudmouth uh, comedian of the group. And of course, you should know Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things. If you haven't seen Stranger Things, you should definitely go watch that on Netflix now. If you're into sci-fi and horror, you will like Stranger Things. And Finn Wolfhard is the like the main character in that, or at least one of the major characters. You also have here Sophia Lillis as Beverly Marsh. I'm kind of excited about Sophia Lillis. She is, uh, I think, very talented, very uh, hopeful uh, young actress. And hopefully uh, she'll stick with it. And as she gets older, we'll, you know, mature to other roles and everything. I think she's pretty talented. And uh, everything I've seen her in, I'm kind of like, oh, who's this? Oh, that's the Sophia Lillis girl. I'm, I'm really hopeful her, for her in the future. Hopefully she'll stick with genre stuff, too, because she seems to be good with it. She's in that uh, Sharp Objects um, little miniseries on HBO right now, which I have not watched yet. It's on my list. <laughs> and of course, you have Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise the Clown, or It. And uh, you, I'm sure you know him from uh, Hemlock Grove. He's actually in the Castle Rock Stephen King series that's on Hulu right now. It's a Hulu original. I love Bill Skarsgård. He's a tall, good-looking, sort of unusual-looking guy. So, surprise, my booty alert for the week is a guy. I know a lot of the ladies like Bill Skarsgård and the whole Skarsgård clan. So he may be a little unusual looking, but he's a good looking tall dude. And he's a hell of an actor. I've pretty much liked everything I've seen him in also. Uh, I don't want to, I want to keep the, the cast list brief, but I really don't want to shortchange anybody in either. So I'll just say that all the cast in this is good. I really enjoyed all the kids' performance. Bill Skarsgård's an awesome Pennywise. You know, I love the Eddie Kasprat character. The kid that played him is awesome. They're just really all good and uh the way they uh not just the i mean the horror of the film's good but the way these kids interact with each, with each other just the way buddies from school would interact with each other is pretty amazing and it's really cool to see these young actors in fact i saw an interview with bill Skarsgård, and he was talking about one of the child actors one of the scenes where he kind of had to get in the kid's face and scare and terrify the crap out of him so bill does the scene and the kid of you know does the appropriate thing, shaking and terror and crying and screaming and all that. And Bill starts to wonder, like, maybe it's not all an act. Maybe I'm actually terrorizing this kid. And he starts feeling bad about it. So when they, you know, they yell cut and the scene's over, he's about to go and apologize to the kid. Like, I'm, I'm sorry if I really scared you, you know, I'm just doing the role. And before he could even say anything, the kid's already reverted to just whoop, neutral. I'm fine. Uh, facial expression goes, I really like what you're doing with the character, Bill. You're doing a good job. 
<laughs> so Bill just kind of flinched like with this kids just tell me I did a good job. So uh again, these are these are some good talented kid actors. Uh hopefully they continue with the genre and we'll see them in more stuff. It fits with the theme that we're going with there, the idea that there are just places that are bad. This takes place in a town that's in a lot of Stephen King stories. There remain. And if you read the novel, it kind of goes a little more into the uh, sort of history or mythology around it uh, that appears as Pennywise the Clown. And the idea is that this alien life force, this otherworldly being, crash landed here tens of thousands of years ago before man even existed and crashed in this area and laid dormant for a long time, basically until humans appeared and started, you know, trying to settle there or whatever. And it woke him up. He was hungry. <laughs> and he started eating them. And in particular, eating their fear. He is sort of otherworldly, you know, I guess you could call him a demon if you want to. A very Lovecraftian sort of uh, entity that feeds on people's fear more so than their flesh. Although he does eat them <laughs> physically. There's a few scenes in there where he takes big bites out of them. <laughs> but it's more about the fear. And it doesn't just go up and chomp you. It's important that he feels the fear first. So basically, since humans started coming around after he crash landed and kind of ruined this area, this area where lots of bad things happen now because of his influence, he wakes up every 27 years hungry, wanting to feed. He gets enough victims or whatever that just disappeared. Derry has a town that has a lot of disappearances every 27 years. And he feeds enough so that he can then slumber and hibernate for another 27 years until he's hungry again. So this story kind of revolves around these kids, you know, uh, they, and they do their research on the history of the town, or at least a couple of them do and relay it to the others, that this thing has happened every 27 years. They go back in history, all the bad things that seem to happen every 27 years, the disappearances. There was like a factory explosion. And this even has ties to The Shining. The, uh, the cook from The Shining, Dick Holleran, uh, was mentioned in, he's kind of passingly mentioned in the, in the movie, but he's even more so mentioned in the book. Uh, the Mike Hanlon character, uh, his dad was saved by Dick Holleran. As you know, Dick Holleran from The Shining, well, that's where the name comes from. He has uh, the gift of sight. He can see things sometimes that happened in the past, seeing things that are going to happen in the future. Uh, kind of uh, talk to people, other people that have the ability, talk to them telepathically. He's basically a psychically gifted person, a sensitive person. And ages ago, the last time, you know, the, the, the thing was, or one of the last times that it was active, uh, there was a fire in a local, like, officer's club where Dick Holleran was a cook. And he saw a flash in his mind of the fire right before it happened. And he managed to get a few people out. Some people got trapped and burned alive in the building. It was like a fire trap building. And the, the person that, he, one of the people that he saved was uh, that Mike uh, Hanscom's, oh, I'm screwing that up. Yeah, it was Mike's father. The kid's father was one of the guys that was saved by Dick Holleran, who, of course, later on became the cook at the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. So again, these things all tie together. <laughs> you see this over and over in Stephen King's. It's part of the 
the great things about uh, all of his books. So again, this is just a bad place. They've done this research on the history of it. So they're one of the few people, one of the few generations of kids that basically became aware that they, they realized something other than what's in the news is going on here. And they very bravely decide to do something about it. They're not just going to be victims and see their friends disappear one by one. They're actually going to fight this creature. And a lot of the themes in this uh, in this story, and you see it over and over again in, in the Stephen King novels, this idea of good versus evil, you know, fear and uh, versus love. And that's basically how they uh, they they go to fight this creature, it with their love for each other, hoping to defeat, you know, or overcome the fear that he's trying to, uh, to, to to feed on, to cause and feed on. So that's a big theme in here. And the novel goes into much greater detail, kind of about it, and and not necessarily telling you exactly what he is, but it's this idea that the uh, these opposing forces. In fact, I think in the book he's kind of portrayed as the spider, and the good force that's a little more passive is a turtle. And then, believe me, you can go read up on this. This turtle and spider analogy happens over and over in Stephen King's novels. I think the turtle is supposedly one of the guardians of our realm. Uh, but he's kind of, you know, he's a turtle. He's kind of slow and passive, but he's a, a good sort of emanating influence. And the spider, that's a very negative, evil influence that's actively trying to unravel and, and destroy things. <laughs> so, like, again... These kids decide they're not going to be victims. They're going to they're going to fight it with their love for one another, with their bravery, and of course they they. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to do any spoilers here, but you know, there's chapter two in their adults, so obviously they they succeed on some level. I mean, there's casualties, there's price to be paid, but they succeed. So I'm very excited to see chapter two. Basically, after they defeat it. They make a, a oath to one another, and you know they know that they've heard it. They've sent it back to its hibernation without its supper. It's hungry, it's mad, and it's got 27 years to stew about it and come back and wreak havoc in the town again. And they make a promise that if it starts happening in 27 years, that they will all come back and fight it again so that another generation doesn't have to suffer at the hands of the thing, the it, uh, Pennywise the Clown. So I'm very excited about Chapter 2. I can't wait to see what they do with adults. I think all the child stars are kind of going to be in it again, possibly for flashback scenes. But there's a whole other cast of adults to play them as adults, you know, middle-aged people, whatever, uh, coming back to the town to face their fears once again. I think it has a lot of great potential for this and the Pet Cemetery remake that's coming up. And I'm sure I will, like I said, I will probably cover both of those when they come about. <laughs> I'm probably running a bit long today, but I do have some writing tips for you today. It's going to be short, but it's kind of related to why I chose Stephen King stuff today. Obviously, I'm a fan, and also he's the reason I'm a writer. I read a lot of stuff growing up. Not all of it was Stephen King, but it was a significant percentage, I would say. And eventually, I just wanted to be Stephen King. So a lot of art, a lot of creative types begin kind of by imitating. I think some of my early short stories and stuff when I was in junior high school was kind of imitating TV shows and, and books that I had read. I'd try to come up with my own story, but it very much, you know, imitated them where the story was close. It was just a way of developing skill. Obviously, as you develop it and you become 
you know, more your own writer. You, you develop your own stories, your own voice, and do a little less imitation. But it, I think it always kind of starts with imitation. And Stephen King, Clive Barker, and a few others were kind of my uh, inspiration of, uh, you know, I wanted to write. Uh, part of it was I read a lot of books. Uh, sometimes I would run out of books to read and reread them. Uh, my, my parents weren't particularly wealthy where they could just buy me lots of books every week. <laughs> so I'd reread them. I had a grandmother that read a lot of horror stories, a lot of Stephen King stories. And uh, when she was done with them, she'd usually have a big box of books for me when I'd visit uh, to read them. And so he was kind of my inspiration, or at least one of my inspirations, to start writing. So my writing tip for you today is a phrase that I've heard before. It's called, reading is writing. And uh, what I mean by that is, reading is kind of like good uh, practice for writing. In fact, you can consider it kind of your practice during your downtime. It's relaxing, it's entertaining. But even if you're not consciously doing it subconsciously, you're kind of, if you're a writer or a creative person, you're kind of like, oh, this is how you do that. You might be making kind of subconscious mental notes, like, oh, this is how you do that. And you kind of have this sort of, uh, you know, collective uh, memory of all these things. And it, it definitely helps with your writing. You kind of, especially, you know, you want to keep up with it. You want to keep up with modern authors, read what's coming out. And kind of see what's on the, you know, on the the modern scope, the modern mind, the way things are developing, because that becomes important, uh, especially if you want if you want a readership. Uh, so it's important to always read. Whenever you have downtime and you're not writing, read. It's it's definitely a good practice session for writing, even if you don't think you're practicing. In fact, I, uh, I've heard Stephen King say this, and I'm going to say it again. This is a, probably a, not a exact quote. But Stephen King once said, if you if someone tells him they're a writer or they want to write, and he looks around their room where they're telling him this, and he doesn't see stacks of books everywhere, they're not serious about it. <laughs> they're not really a writer. Although that may be a little outdated because they might have it all stored in their Kindle. They might not be piles of books haphazardly stacked everywhere. It might just be uh, all downloaded on their Kindle. But basically, it amounts to if you're not a big reader, you're probably not going to be that great of a writer or it's, or it's not really going to uh, go anywhere. I kind of agree with that theory. It kind of just gives you the, uh, the mental exercise to see how things are written, to see how things are constructed, even if you're not consciously aware of it. So always keep reading, especially read the, a lot of the genre you're currently writing in, just to kind of get the, the feel of it in your brain. But just read a lot in general. <laughs> do it in your downtime. Think of it as practicing your downtime. If you think it's going to interfere, like if I do this, I won't have time to write. No, every writer's got downtime. You can't just sit and write 24 hours. You need entertainment. You need a break. Read during your breaks. It's not going to interfere. It's only going to inspire you to do more and do greater works. So that's kind of my short, brief, you know, writing tip for this week. And uh, I've enjoyed talking with you guys. Uh, I was really proud, just to let you know, kind of in closing here, I was really proud of episode six. Uh, not just for the content, because it was kind of a short episode, but the content and also the, the sound quality. I think I finally nailed it down with this new mixer setup. I think it was a little shaky, maybe, for episodes uh, three, four, and five when I switched this setup. I got it nailed now. So if you haven't heard episode six, please go back and listen to it. I'm actually quite proud of that episode. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, next week, I'm planning on doing something about vampires and maybe werewolves, too. I'm not sure about that yet. Don't forget our special Halloween episode. 
where I cover the best of horror from Halloween 2017 to 2018. Uh, check out our Facebook page, Orgle Zombie Dragon, Instagram. Please, if you enjoy the show, one of the best ways you can support it is rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website, orbitalzombiedragon.com. But now it's time for us to drop out of low Earth orbit, go on another galactic adventure. See you next week. Dragana, take us out. Yeah.